Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road at Mr. Standfast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today we make the transition from Part 1 to Part 2, beginning with Chapter 11, The Valley of Humiliation. I collected some baggage and a pile of newly arrived letters from my rooms in Westminster and took a taxi to my Park Lane flat. Usually I had gone back to that old place with a great feeling of comfort, like a boy from school who ranges about his room at home and examines his treasures. I used to like to see my hunting trophies on the wall and to sink into my own armchairs, but now I had no pleasure in the thing. I had a bath and changed into uniform, and that made me feel in better fighting trim. But I suffered from a heavy conviction of abject failure and had no share in McGillivray's optimism. The awe with which the Blackstone gang had filled me three years before had revived a thousandfold. Personal humiliation was the least part of my trouble. What worried me was the sense of being up against something inhumanely formidable and wise and strong. I believed I was willing to own defeat and chuck up the game. Among the unopened letters was one from Peter, a very bulky one which I sat down to read at leisure. It was a curious epistle, far the longest he'd ever written me, and its size made me understand his loneliness. He was still at his German prison camp, but expecting every day to go to Switzerland. He said he could get back to England or South Africa, if he wanted, for they were clear that he could never be a combatant again. But he thought he'd better stay in Switzerland, for he would be unhappy in England with all his friends fighting. As usual, he made no complaints, and seemed to be very grateful for his small mercies. There was a doctor who was kind to him, and some good fellows among the prisoners. But Peter's letter was made up chiefly of reflection. He had always been a bit of a philosopher, and now, in his isolation, he had taken to thinking hard, and poured out the results to me on pages of thin paper in his clumsy handwriting. I could read between the lines that he was having a stiff fight with himself. He was trying to keep his courage going in face of the bitterest trial he could be called on to face. A crippling old age. He had always known a good deal about the Bible, and that, and the Pilgrim's Progress, were his chief aids in reflection. Both he took quite literally, as if they were newspaper reports of actual recent events. He mentioned that after much consideration he had reached the conclusion that the three greatest men he had ever heard of or met were Mr. Valiant for Truth, the Apostle Paul, and a certain Billy Strang, who had been with him in Mashonaland in 92. Billy I knew all about. He had been Peter's hero and leader till a lion got him in the Blauberg. Peter preferred Valiant for Truth to Mr. Greatheart, I think, because of his superior truculence, for being very gentle himself. He loved a bold speaker. After that he dropped into a vein of self-examination. He regretted that he fell far short of any of the three. He thought that he might with luck resemble Mr. Standfast of Pilgrim's Progress, for like him he had not much trouble in keeping wakeful, and was also as poor as a howler, and didn't care for women. He only hoped that he could imitate him in making a good end. Then followed some remarks of Peter's on courage, which came to me in that London room as if spoken by his living voice. I've never known anyone so brave, so brave by instinct, or anyone who hated so much to be told so. It was almost the only thing that could make him angry. All his life he'd been facing death, and to take risks seemed to him as natural as to get up in the morning and eat his breakfast, but he had started out to consider the very thing which before he had taken for granted. And here is an extract from his conclusions. I paraphrase him, for he was not grammatical. It's easy enough to be brave if you're feeling well and have food inside you. And it's not so difficult, even if you're short of a meal and seedy, for that makes you inclined to gamble. I mean by being brave, playing the game by the right rules, without letting it worry you that you may likely get knocked on the head. It's the wisest way to save your skin. It doesn't do to think about death if you're facing a charging lion or trying to bluff a lot of savages. If you think about it, you'll get it. If you don't, the odds are you won't. That kind of courage is only good nerves and experience. Most courage is experience. Most people are a little scared at new things. You want a bigger heart to face danger which you go out to look for and which doesn't come to you in the ordinary way of business. Still, that's pretty much the same thing. Good nerves and good health, and a natural liking for rows. You see, Dick, in all that game there's a lot of fun, 
"'There's excitement and the fun of using your wits and skill. "'And you know that the bad bits can't last long. "'When Arcole sent me to Mechapan's crawl, "'I didn't altogether fancy the job, "'but at the worst it was three years' sport, "'and I got so excited that I never thought of the risk till it was over. "'But the big courage is the cold-blooded kind, "'the kind that never lets go, even when you're feeling empty inside, "'and your blood's thin, and there's no kind of fun or profit to be had.' "'and the trouble's not over in an hour or two, "'but lasts for months and years. "'One of the men here was speaking about that kind, "'and he called it fortitude. "'I reckon fortitude's the biggest thing a man can have, "'just to go on enduring when there's no guts or heart left in you. "'Billy had it when he trekked solitary from Garangozi to the Limpapo "'with fever and a broken arm, "'just to show the Portugooses that he wouldn't be downed by them. "'But the head man at the job... "'was the Apostle Paul. "'Peter was writing for his own comfort, "'for fortitude was all that was left to him now. "'But his words came pretty straight to me, "'and I read them again and again, "'for I needed the lesson. "'Here I was losing heart "'just because I'd failed in the first round "'and my pride had taken a knock. "'I felt honestly ashamed of myself, "'and that made me a far happier man. "'There could be no question of dropping the business, "'whatever its difficulties.' I had a queer religious feeling that Ivory and I had our fortunes intertwined and that no will of mine could keep us apart. I had faced him before the war and won. I had faced him again and lost. The third time, or the twentieth time, we would reach a final decision. The whole business had hitherto appeared to me a trifle unreal. At any rate, my own connection with it, I'd been docilely obeying orders. But my real self had been standing aside and watching my doings with a certain aloofness. "'but that hour in the tube station had brought me into the serum, "'and I saw the affair not as bullets or even blank irons, "'but as my own. "'Before I had been itching to get back to the front. "'Now I wanted to get on to Ivory's trail, "'though it should take me through the nether pit. "'Peter was right. "'Fortitude was a thing a man must possess "'if he would save his soul. "'The hours passed, and as I expected, "'there came no word from McGillivray. "'I had some dinner set up to me at seven o'clock,' "'and at about eight I was thinking of looking up Blank Iron. "'Just then came a telephone call "'asking me to go round to Sir Walter Bullivant's home "'in Queen Anne's Gate. Ten minutes later I was ringing the bell, "'and the door was opened to me by the same impassive butler "'who had admitted me on that famous night three years before. "'Nothing had changed in the pleasant green-paneled hall. "'The alcove was the same as I had watched from it "'the departure of the man who now called himself Ivory.' The telephone book lay in the very place from which I had snatched it in order to ring up the first sea lord, and in the back room, where that night five anxious officials had conferred, I found Sir Walter and Blankiron. Both looked worried, the American feverishly so. He walked up and down the hearth rug, sucking an unlit black cigar. "'Say, Dick,' he said, "'this is a bad business. It was no fault of yours. You did fine. It was us.' "'Me and Sir Walter and McGillivray that were the quitters.' "'Any news?' I asked. "'So far the cover's drawn blank,' Sir Walter replied. "'It was the devil's own work that our friend looked your way today. "'You were pretty certain that he saw that you recognized him?' "'Absolutely. "'As sure as that he knew I recognized him in your hall three years ago "'when he was pretending to be Lord Aloha.' "'No,' said Blankiron dolefully. "'That little flicker of recognition is just the one thing you can't be wrong about.' "'Land alive! I wish Mr. McGillivray would come.' "'The bell rang, and the door opened, but it was not McGillivray. "'It was a young girl in a white ball gown "'with a cluster of blue cornflowers at her breast. "'The sight of her fetched Sir Walter up out of his chair "'so suddenly that he upset his coffee cup. "'Barry, my dear, how did you manage it? "'I didn't expect you till the late train. "'I was in London, you see, and they telephoned on your telegram. "'I'm staying with Aunt Doria.' "'and I cut her theater party. "'She thinks I'm at the Shanwick's dance, "'so I needn't go home till morning. "'Good evening, General Hannay. "'You got over the hill difficulty. "'The next stage is the Valley of Humiliation,' I answered. "'So it would appear,' she said gravely, "'and sat very quietly on the edge of Sir Walter's chair "'with her small, cool hand upon his. "'I had been picturing Mary, "'and my recollection is very young and glimmering, "'a dancing, exquisite child.' "'But now I revised that picture. "'The crystal freshness of morning was still there, "'but I saw how deep the waters were. 
"'It was the clean fineness and strength of her that entranced me. "'I didn't even think of her as pretty, "'any more than a man thinks of the good looks of the friend he worships. "'We waited, hardly speaking a word, till McGillivray came. "'The first sight of his face told his story. "'Gone?' asked Blinkiron sharply. "'The man's lethargic calm seemed to have wholly deserted him. "'Gone,' repeated the newcomer. "'We have just tracked him down.' "'Oh, he managed it cleverly. "'Never a sign of disturbance in any of his lairs. "'His dinner ordered a Biggleswick, "'and several people invited to stay with him for the weekend. "'One a member of this government. Two meetings at which he was to speak arranged for next week. "'Early this afternoon he flew over to France "'as a passenger in one of his new planes. "'He'd been mixed up with the airborne people for months. "'Of course there's another man with another face. "'Miss Lamington here discovered that just too late.' "'The Airbus came out of its course and came down in Normandy. "'By this time our man's in Paris, or beyond it.' "'Sir Walter took off his big tortoiseshell spectacles "'and laid them carefully on the table. "'Roll up the map of Europe,' he said. "'This is our Austerlitz. "'Mary, my dear, I'm feeling very old.' "'McGillivray had the sharpened face of a bitterly disappointed man. "'Blinkiron had got very red.' "'and I could see that he was blaspheming violently under his breath. "'Mary's eyes were quiet and solemn. "'She kept on patting Sir Walter's hand. "'The sense of some great impending disaster hung heavily on me, "'and to break the spell I asked for details. "'Tell me just the extent of the damage,' I asked. "'Our neat plan for deceiving the boss has failed. "'That is bad. "'A dangerous spy has got beyond our power. "'That's worse.' "'Tell me, is there still a worst? "'What's the limit of mischief he can do?' "'Sir Walter had risen and joined Blankiron on the hearthrug. "'His brows were furrowed, and his mouth hard as if he were suffering pain. "'There's no limit,' he said. "'None that I can see, except the long-suffering of God. "'You know the man is ivory, "'and you knew him as that other whom you believed to have been shot "'one summer morning and decently buried. "'You feared the second. "'At least if you didn't, I did, most mortally. "'You realize that we feared Ivory, "'and you knew enough about him to see his fiendish cleverness. "'Well, you have the two men combined in one man. "'Ivory was the best brain McGillivray and I ever encountered, "'the most cunning and patient and long-sighted. "'Combine him with the other, "'the chameleon who can blend himself with his environment "'and has as many personalities as there are types and traits on the earth.' "'What kind of enemy is that, to have to fight?' "'I admit it's a steep proposition. "'But after all, how much ill can he do? "'There are pretty strict limits to the activity of even a clever spy.' "'I agree. "'But this man is not a spy who buys a few wretched subordinates "'and steals a dozen private letters. "'He's a genius who's been living as part of our English life. "'There's nothing he hasn't seen. "'He's been on terms of intimacy with all kinds of politicians here.' "'We know that. He did it as ivory. "'They rather liked him, for he was clever and flattered them, "'and they told him things. "'But God knows what he saw and heard in his other personalities. "'For all I know, he may have breakfasted at Downing Street "'with letters of introduction from President Wilson, "'or visited the Grand Fleet as a distinguished neutral. "'Then think of the women, how they talk. "'We're the leakiest society on earth, "'and we safeguard ourselves by keeping dangerous people out of it. "'We trust to our outer barrage. "'But anyone who has really slipped inside has a million chances. "'And this, remember, is one man in ten million, "'a man whose brain never sleeps for a moment, "'who is quick to seize the slightest hint, "'who could piece a plan together out of a dozen bits of gossip. "'It's like... "'It's as if the chief of the intelligence department "'were suddenly to desert to the enemy. "'The ordinary spy knows only bits of unconnected facts. "'This man knows our life and our way of thinking.' "'and everything about us. "'Well, but a treatise on English life in time of war "'won't do much good to the Bosch.' "'Sir Walter shook his head. "'Don't you realize the explosive stuff that's lying about? "'Ivory knows enough to make the next German peace offensive really deadly, "'not the blundering thing which it has been up to now, "'but something which gets our weak spots on the raw. "'He knows enough to wreck our campaign in the field, "'and the awful thing is that we don't know just what he knows "'or what he's aiming for.' This war is a packet of surprises. 
"'Both sides are struggling for the margin, "'that little fraction of advantage. "'And between evenly matched enemies, "'it's just the extra atom of foreknowledge that tells. "'Then we've got to push off and get after him,' "'I said cheerfully. "'But what are you going to do?' "'asked McGillivray. "'If it were merely a question of destroying an organization, "'it might be managed, "'for an organization presents a big front. "'But it's a question of destroying this one man, "'and his front is like a razor edge. "'How are you going to find him? "'It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. "'And what a needle! "'A needle which can become a piece of straw "'or a tin tack when it chooses. "'All the same, we've got to do it,' I said, "'remembering old Peter's lesson on fortitude.' "'though I can't say I was feeling very stout-hearted. "'Sir Walter flung himself wearily into an armchair. "'I wish I could be an optimist,' he said, "'but it looks as if we must own defeat. "'I've been at this work for twenty years, "'and though I've been often beaten, "'I've always held certain cards in the game. "'Now I'm hanged if I have any. "'It looks like a knockout. "'Had I... "'It's no good deluding ourselves.' "'We're men enough to look facts in the face "'and tell ourselves the truth. "'I don't see any ray of light in this business. "'We've missed our shot by a hair's breadth, "'and that's the same as missing by miles.' "'I remember he looked at Mary "'as if for confirmation, "'but she did not smile or nod. "'Her face was very grave, "'and her eyes looked steadily at him. "'Then they moved and met mine, "'and they seemed to give me my marching orders. "'Sir Walter,' I said, Three years ago you and I sat in this very room. "'We thought we were done to the world, as we think now. "'You had just that one miserable little clue to hang on to, "'a dozen words scribbled in a notebook by a dead man. "'You thought I was mad when I asked for Scudder's book, "'but we put our backs into the job, "'and in twenty-four hours we had won out. "'Remember that then we were fighting against time, "'and now we have a reasonable amount of leisure. "'Then we had nothing but a sentence of gibberish.' "'Now we have a great body of knowledge, "'for Blankiron has been brooding over Ivory like an old hen, "'and he knows his ways of working and his breed of confederate. "'You've got something to work on now. "'Do you mean to tell me that when stakes are so big, "'you're going to chuck in your hand?' "'McGillivray raised his head. "'We know a good deal about Ivory, yes, but Ivory's dead. "'We know nothing of the man who was gloriously resurrected "'this evening in Normandy.' "'Oh, I beg to differ with you. Yes, we do.' "'There are many faces to the man, but only one mind. "'And you know plenty about that mind.' "'I wonder,' said Sir Walter, "'how can you know a mind which has no characteristics "'except that it is wholly and supremely competent? "'Mere mental powers won't give us a clue. "'We want to know the character which is behind all the personalities. "'Above all, we want to know its foibles. "'If we only had a hint of some weakness, we could make a plan. "'Well, let's set down all we know.' I cried, for the more I argued, the keener I grew. I told them in some detail the story of the night in the Coolin and what I'd heard there. There's the two names, Chelius and Bonemertz. The man spoke them in the same breath as Elfenbein, so they must be associated with Ivory's gang. You've got to get the whole secret service of the Allies busy to fit a meaning to these two words. Surely to goodness you'll find something. Remember, those names don't belong to the Ivory part. "'but to the big game behind all the different disguises. "'And then there's the talk about the wild birds and the cage birds. "'I haven't a guess of what that means, "'but it refers to some infernal gang. "'And among your piles of records there must be some clue. "'You set the intelligence of two hemispheres busy on the job. "'You've got all the machinery. "'It's my experience that if even one solitary man "'keeps chewing on a problem, he discovers something.' My enthusiasm was beginning to strike sparks from McGillivray. He was looking thoughtful now, instead of despondent. "'There might be something in that,' he said. "'But it's a far-out chance.' "'Of course it's a far-out chance. But that's all we're ever going to get from Ivory. But you've taken a bad chance before and won. Then you've all that you know about Ivory right here. Go through his dossier with a small tooth comb, and I'll bet you find something to work on. Blank iron, you're a man with a cool head.' "'You admit we've a sporting chance?' "'Sure, Dick. "'He's fixed things so that the lines are across the track. "'But we'll clear somehow. "'So far as John S. Blankiron is concerned, "'he's got just one thing to do in this world, "'and that's to follow the yellow dog "'and have him neatly and cleanly tidied up. "'I've got a stack of personal affronts to settle, 
"'It was easy fruit, and he hasn't been very respectful. "'Count me in, Dick.' "'Then we're agreed,' I cried. "'Well, gentlemen, it's up to you to arrange the first stage. "'You've some pretty solid staff work to put in before you get on the trail.' "'Andrew?' Sir Walter asked. "'I'm going back to my brigade. "'I want a rest and a change. "'Besides, the first stage is office work, and I'm no use for that. "'But I'll be waiting to be summoned.' "'and I'll come like a shot as soon as you hike me out. "'I've got a presentiment about this thing. "'I know there'll be a finish, and that I'll be in at it, "'and I think it will be a desperate, bloody business, too.' "'I found Mary's eyes fixed upon me, "'and in them I read the same thought. "'She had not spoken a word, but had sat on the edge of a chair, "'swinging a foot idly, one hand playing with an ivory fan. "'She had given me my old orders, "'and I looked to her for confirmation of the new.' "'Miss Lamington, you are the wisest of the lot of us. "'What do you say?' "'She smiled, that shy, companionable smile "'which I had been picturing to myself "'through all the wanderings of the past month. "'I think you're right,' she said. "'We've a long way to go yet, "'for the Valley of Humiliation "'comes only halfway in the Pilgrim's Progress. "'The next stage was Vanity Fair. "'I might be of some use there, don't you think?' "'I remember the way she laughed "'and flung back her head like a gallant boy.' "'The mistake we've all been making,' she said, "'is that our methods are too terre a terre. "'We've a poet to deal with, a great poet, "'and we must fling our imaginations forward to catch up with him. "'His strength is his unexpectedness, you know, "'and we won't beat him by plodding only. "'I believe the wildest course is the wisest, "'for it is the most likely to intersect his. "'Who's the poet among us?' "'Peter,' I said, "'but he's pinned down with a game leg in Germany. "'All the same, we must rope him in. "'By this time we'd all jeered up, "'for it is wonderful what a tonic there is "'in a prospect of action. "'The butler brought in tea, "'which it was Bullivant's habit to drink after dinner. "'To me it seemed fantastic to watch a slip of a girl "'pouring it out for two grizzled "'and distinguished servants of the state "'and one battered soldier. "'As decorous a family party as you would ask to see.' "'and to reflect that all four were engaged in an enterprise "'where men's lives must be reckoned at less than thistledown. "'After that we went upstairs to a noble Georgian drawing-room "'and Mary played to us. "'I don't care two straws for music from an instrument, "'unless it be the pipes or a regimental band, "'but I dearly love the human voice. "'But she would not sing, "'for singing to her, I fancy, "'was something that did not come at will, "'but flowed only like a bird's note when the mood favored.' I did not want it either. I was content to let Cherry Ripe be the one song linked with her in my memory. It was McGillibray who brought us back to business. I wished to heaven there was one habit of mine we could definitely attach to him and to no one else. At this moment the word he had only one meaning for all of us. You can't do nothing with his mind, Blank Iron trawled. You can't loose the bands of Orion, as the Bible says, or hold Leviathan with a hook. I reckoned I could, and made a mighty close study of his devices, but the darn cuss wouldn't stay put. I thought I'd tied him down to the double bluff, and he went and played the triple bluff on me. There's nothing doing that line. A memory of Peter recurred to me. What about the blind spot? I asked, and I told them old Peter's pet theory. Every man that God made has his weak spot somewhere, some flaw in his character which leaves a dull patch in his brain. We've got to find that out. "'and I think I've made a beginning.' "'McGillivray in a sharp voice asked my meaning. "'He's in a funk of something,' I said. "'Oh, I don't mean he's a coward. "'A man in his trade wants the nerve of a buffalo. "'He could give us all points and courage. "'What I mean is that he's not clean white all through. "'There are yellow streaks somewhere in him. "'I've given a good deal of thought to this courage business, "'for I haven't got a great deal of it myself. "'Not like Peter, anyway.' "'I've got heaps of soft places in me. "'I'm afraid of being drowned, for one thing, "'or getting my eyes shot out. "'Ivory's afraid of bombs. "'At any rate, he's afraid of bombs in a big city. "'I once read a book which talked about a thing called agoraphobia. "'Perhaps it's that. "'Now, if we know that weak spot, it helps us in our work. "'There are some places he won't go to. "'There are some things he can't do. "'Not well, anyway. "'I reckon that's useful.' "'Yes,' said McGillivray, 
"'Perhaps it's not what you'd call a burning in a shining light.' "'There's another chink in his armor,' I went on. "'There's one person in the world he can never practice his transformations on, and that's me. I shall always know him again, though he appeared as Sir Douglas Haig. I can't explain why, but I've got a feel in my bones about it. I didn't recognize him before, for I thought he was dead, and the nerve in my brain which should have been looking for him wasn't working. But I'm on my guard now, and that nerve is functioning at full power.' Whenever and wherever and howsoever we meet again on the face of the earth, it will be Dr. Livingston, I presume, between him and me. That is better, said McGillivray. If we have any luck, Hannay, it won't be long till we pull you out of His Majesty's forces. Mary got up from the piano and resumed her old perch on the arm of Sir Walter's chair. There's another blind spot which you haven't mentioned. It was a cool evening, but I noticed that her cheeks had suddenly flushed. "'Last week, Mr. Ivory asked me to marry him,' she said. "'We'll return with Part 2, Chapter 12, right after these sponsor messages.' "'You know how to book flights and hotels. "'All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. "'That's why you need Viator. "'Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. "'There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, "'so you can find something for everyone. "'And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. "'Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. "'Find travel experiences for you. "'Do more with Viator.'" And now, Part 2, Chapter 12, I Become a Combatant Once More. I returned to France on the 13th of September, and we took over my old brigade on the 19th of the same month. We were shoved in at the Polygon Wood on the 26th, and after four days got so badly mauled that we were brought out to refit. On October 7th, very much to my surprise, I was given command of a division and was on the fringes of the E-Press fighting during the first days of November. From that front we were hurried down to Cambrai in support, but came in only for the last backwash of that singular battle. We held a bit of the St. Quentin sector till just before Christmas, when we had a spell of rest in billets, which endured, so far as I was concerned, till the beginning of January, when I was sent off on the errand which I shall presently relate. That is a brief summary of my military record in the latter part of 1917. I'm not going to enlarge on the fighting. Except for the days of the Polygon Wood, it was neither very severe nor very distinguished, and you'll find it in the history books. What I have to tell of here is my own personal quest, for all the time I was living with my mind turned two ways, in the morasses of the Hanneback Flats, in the slimy support lines at Zonbeek, in the tortured uplands about Flesquiers, and in many other odd places, I kept worrying at my private conundrum. All night I would lie awake thinking of it, and many a toss I took into shell holes, and many a time I stepped off the duckboards, because my eyes were on a different landscape. Nobody ever chewed a few wretched clues into such a pulp as I did during those bleak months in Flanders and Picardy, for I had an instinct that the thing was desperately grave, graver even than the battle before me. Russia had gone headlong to the devil, Italy had taken it between the eyes and was still dizzy, and our own prospects were none too bright. The Bosch was getting uppish, and with some cause, and I foresaw a rocky time ahead till America could line up with us in the field. It was the chance for the wild birds— and I used to wake in a sweat to think what devilry Ivory might be engineering. I believe I did my proper job reasonably well, but I put in my most savage thinking over the other. I remember how I used to go over every hour of every day, from that June night in the Cotswolds till my last meeting with Bullivant in London, trying to find a new bearing. I should probably have got brain fever if I hadn't had to spend most of my days and nights fighting a stiffish battle with a very watchful Hun. That kept my mind balanced, and I dare say it gave an edge to it, for during those months I was lucky enough to hit on a better scent than Bullivant and McGillivray and Blankiron, pulling a thousand wires in their London offices. I will set down in order of time the various incidents in this private quest of mine. The first was my meeting with Gordy Hamilton. It happened just after I rejoined the brigade, when I went down to have a look at our Scots Fusilier Battalion. The old brigade had been roughly handled on 31st July, and it had to get heavy drafts to come anywhere near strength. The Fusiliers especially were almost a new lot, formed by joining our remnants to the remains of a battalion in another division, 
and bringing about a dozen officers from the training unit at home. I inspected the men, and my eyes caught sight of a familiar face. I asked his name, and the colonel got it from the sergeant major. It was Lance Corporal George Hamilton. Now I wanted a new bad man, and I resolved then and there to have my old antagonist. That afternoon he reported to me at brigade headquarters. As I looked at that solid, bandy-legged figure, standing as stiff to attention as a tobacconist's sign, his ugly face hewn out of brown oak, his honest, sullen mouth, and his blue eyes staring into vacancy, I knew I had got the man I wanted. Hamilton, I said, you and I have met before. Sir? came the mystified answer. Look at me, man, and tell me if you don't recognize me. He moved his eyes a fraction in a respectful glance. Sir, I don't mind of you. Well, I'll refresh your memory. Do you remember the hall in Numulus Street and the meeting there? You had a fight with a man outside and got knocked down. He made no answer, but his color deepened. And a fortnight later at a public house in Muir Town, you saw the same man and gave him the chase of his life. I could see his mouth set. Provisions of the penalties laid down by the king's regulations for striking an officer must have crossed his mind, but he never budged. Look at me in the face, man, I said. Do you remember me now? He did as he was bid. Sir, I mind of you. Have you nothing more to say? He cleared his throat. Sir, I did not ken I was hitting an officer. Of course you didn't. You were perfectly right. And if the war was over and we were both free men, I would give you a chance of knocking me down here and now. That's got to wait. When you saw me last, I was serving my country, although you didn't know it. We're serving together now, and you must get your revenge out of the Bosch. I'm going to make you my servant, for you and I have a pretty close bond between us. What do you say to that? This time he looked me full in the face. His troubled eye appraised me and was satisfied. I'm proud to be a servant to you, sir, he said. Then out of his chest came a strangled chuckle, and he forgot his discipline. Lash, but you're the great lad. He recovered himself. "'promptly, saluted, and then marched off. "'The second episode befell during our brief rest "'after the Polygon Wood, "'when I'd ridden down the line one afternoon "'to see a friend in the heavy artillery. "'I was returning the drizzle of evening, "'clanking along the greasy pavé between the sad poplars, "'when I struck a labor company "'repairing the ravages of a Bosch strafe that morning. "'I wasn't very certain of my road "'and asked one of the workers. "'He straightened himself and saluted.' and I saw beneath the disreputable cap the features of the man who had been with me in the cool and crevice. I spoke a word to a sergeant, who fell him out, and he walked a bit of the way with me. "'Great Scott, Wake! What brought you here?' I asked. "'Same thing as brought you, this rotten war.' I had dismounted and was walking beside him, and I noticed that his lean face had lost its pallor, and that his eyes were not less hot than they used to be. "'You seem to thrive on it.' I said, for I did not know what to say. A sudden shyness possessed me. Wake must have gone through some violent cyclones of feeling before it came to this. He saw what I was thinking, and laughed in his sharp, ironical way. Don't flatter yourself you've made a convert, I think as I always thought. But I came to the conclusion that since the fates had made me a government servant, I might as well do my work somewhere less cushioned than a chair in the home office. Oh no, it wasn't a matter of principle. One kind of work's as good as another, and I'm a better clerk than a navvy. With me it was self-indulgence. I wanted fresh air and exercise. I looked at him, mud to the waist, his hands all blistered and cut with unaccustomed labor. I could realize what his associates must mean to him, and how he would relish the rough tonguing of non-coms. "'You're a confounded humbug,' I said. "'Why on earth didn't you go into an OTC and come out with a commission? They're easy enough to get.' "'You mistake my case,' he said bitterly. "'I experienced no sudden conviction about the justice of the war. "'I stand where I always stood. "'I'm a non-combatant, and I wanted a change of civilian work. "'No, it wasn't any idiotic tribunal sent me here. "'I came of my own free will, and I'm really rather enjoying myself.' "'It's a rough job for a man like you, Wake,' I said. "'Not as rough as the fellows get in the trenches.' I watched a battalion marching back today. They looked like ghosts who had been years in muddy graves. 
white faces and dazed eyes and leaden feet. Mine's a cushy job. I like it best when the weather's foul. It cheats me into thinking I'm doing my duty. I nodded toward a recent shell hole. Much of that sort of thing. Now and then, we had a good dusting this morning. I can't say I liked it at the time, but I like to look back on it. A sort of moral anodyne. I wonder what on earth the rest of your lot make of you. They don't make anything. I'm not remarkable for my bonhomme. I think I'm a prig, which I am. It doesn't amuse me to talk about beer or women or listen to a gramophone or grouse about my last meal. But I'm quite content, thank you. Sometimes I get a seat in a corner of a YMCA hut and have a book or two. My chief affliction is the padre. He was up at Keeble in my time and, as one of my colleagues puts it, wants to be too bloody helpful. What are you doing, Hanny? I see you're some kind of general. They're pretty thick on the ground here. I'm a sort of a general. Soldiering the salient isn't the softest of jobs, but I don't believe it's as tough as yours is for you. Do you know, Wake, I wish I had you in my brigade. Trained or untrained, you're a dashed, stout-hearted fellow. He laughed with a trifle less acidity than usual. Almost thou persuadest me to be combatant. No, thank you. I haven't the courage. Besides, there's my jolly old principles. All the same, I'd like to be near you. You're a good chap, and I've had the honor to assist in your education. I must be getting back, or the sergeant will think I bolted. We shook hands, and the last I saw of him was a figure saluting stiffly in the wet twilight. The third incident was trivial enough, though momentous in its results. Just before I got the division, I had a bout of malaria. We were in support in the salient, in very uncomfortable trenches behind Welchy, and I spent three days on my back in a dugout. Outside was a blizzard of rain, and the water now and then came down the stairs to the gas curtain and stood in pools at my bedfoot. It wasn't the merriest place to convalesce in, but I was as hard as nails at the time, and by the third day I was beginning to sit up and be bored. I read all my English papers twice and a big stack of German ones which I used to have set up by a friend in the GHQ intelligence, who knew I liked to follow what the Bosch was saying. As I dozed and ruminated in the way a man does after fever, I was struck by the tremendous display of one advertisement in the English press. It was a thing called Gusseter's Deep Breathing System, which, according to its promoter, was a cure for every ill, mental, moral, or physical, that man can suffer. Politicians, generals, admirals, and music hall artists all testified to the new life it had opened up for them. I remember wondering what these sportsmen got for their testimonies, and thinking I would write a spoof letter myself to the old gusseter. Then I picked up the German papers, and suddenly my eye caught an advertisement of the same kind in the Frankfurter Zittung. It was not gusseter this time, but one Weissman, and his game was identical. Deep breathing. The Hun style was different from the English all about the goddess of health, and the nymphs of the mountains, and two quotations from Schiller. But the principle was the same. That made me ponder a little, and I went carefully through the whole batch. I found the advertisement in the Frankfurter, and in one or two rather obscure Volkstims and Volkszeitungs. I found it too in Der Grosse Krieg, the official German propagandist picture paper. They were the same, all but one, and that one had a bold variation, for it contained four of the sentences used in the ordinary English advertisement. This struck me as fishy, and I started to write a letter to McGillivray pointing out what seemed to be a case of trading with the enemy, and advising him to get on to Mr. Gusseter's financial backing. I thought he might find a Hun syndicate behind him. And then I had another notion, which made me rewrite my letter. I went to the papers again, the English ones which contained the advertisement were all good, solid, bellicose organs, the kind of thing no censorship would object to leaving the country. I had before me a small sheaf of pacifist prints, and they had not the advertisement. That might be for reasons of circulation, or it might not. The German papers were either radical or socialist publications, just the opposite of the English lot, except the Grosse Krieg. Now we have a free press, and Germany has... Strictly speaking, none. All her journalistic indiscretions are calculated. Therefore, the Bosch has no objection to his rags getting to enemy countries. He wants it. He likes to see them quoted in columns headed, Through German Glasses, 
and made the text of articles showing what a good Democrat he's becoming. As I puzzled over the subject, certain conclusions began to form in my mind. The four identical sentences seemed to hint that deep breathing had Bosch affiliations. Here was a chance of communicating with the enemy which would defy the argus-eyed gentleman who examined the mails. What was to hinder Mr. A at one end, writing an advertisement with a good cipher in it, and the paper containing it getting into Germany by Holland in three days? Herr B at the other end replied in the Frankfurter, and a few days later shrewd editors and acute intelligence officers, and Mr. A, were reading it in London, though only Mr. A knew what it really meant. It struck me as a bright idea, the sort of simple thing that doesn't occur to clever people, and very rarely to the Bosch. I wished I was not in the middle of a battle, for I would have had a try at investigating the cipher myself. I wrote a long letter to McGillivray, putting my case, and then went to sleep. When I awoke, I reflected that it was a pretty thin argument, and would have stopped the letter if it hadn't gone off early by a ration party. After that, things began very slowly to happen. The first was when Gordy Hamilton, having gone to Boulogne to fetch the mess stores for me, returned with the startling news that he had seen Gresson. He had not heard his name, but described him dramatically to me as the wee red-headed devil that kicked Ecky Brucky's knee your time in Glasgow, sir. I recognized the description. Gresson, it appeared, was joyriding. He was with a party of labor delegates who had been met by two officers and carried off in chars a box. Hamilton reported from inquiries among his friends that this kind of visitor came weekly. I thought it a very sensible notion on the government's part, but I wondered how Gresson had been selected. I had hoped that McGillivray had weeks ago made a long arm and quadded him. Perhaps they had too little evidence to hang him, but he was the blackest sort of suspect and should have been interned. A week later I had occasion to be at GHQ on business connected with my new division. My friends in the intelligence allowed me to use the direct line to London, and I called up McGillivray. For ten minutes I had an exciting talk, for I had had no news from that quarter since I left England. I heard that the Portuguese Jew had escaped, had vanished from his native heather when they went to get him. They had identified him as a German professor of Celtic languages, who had held a chair in a Welsh college. A dangerous fellow, for he was an upright, high-minded, raging fanatic. Against Gresson they had no evidence at all, but he was kept under strict observation. When I asked about his crossing to France, McGillivray replied that that was part of their scheme. I inquired if the visit had given them any clues, but I never got an answer, for the line had to be cleared at that moment for the war office. I hunted up the man who had charge of those labor visits, and made friends with him. Gresson, he said, had been a quiet, well-mannered, and most appreciative guest. He had wept tears on Vinnie Ridge, and, strictly against orders, had made a speech to some troops he met on the Arras Road about how British labor was remembering the army in its prayers, and sweating blood to make guns. On the last day he had had a misadventure, for he got very sick on the road, some kidney trouble that couldn't stand the jolting of the car, and had to be left at a village and picked up by the party on its way back. They found him better, but still shaky. I cross-examined the particular officer in charge about that halt, and learned that Gresson had been left alone in a peasant's cottage, for he said he only needed to lie down. The place was the hamlet of Eucourt St. Anne. For several weeks the name stuck in my head. It had a pleasant quaint sound, and I wondered how Gresson had spent his hours there. I hunted it up on the map, and promised myself to have a look at it the next time we came out to rest, and then I forgot about it till I heard the name mentioned again. On October 23rd I had the bad luck during a tour of my first-line trenches to stop a small shell fragment with my head. It was a close, misty day, and I had taken off my tin hat to wipe my brow when the thing happened. I got a long, shallow scalp wound which meant nothing but bled a lot, and as we were not in for any big move, the M.O. sent me back to a clearing station to have it seen to. I was three days in the place, and being perfectly well, had leisure to look about me and reflect, so that I recall that time as a queer, restful interlude in the infernal racket of war. I remember yet how on my last night there a gale made the lamp swing and flicker, and turned the gray-green canvas wall into a mass of mottled shadows. The floor canvas was muddy from the tramping of many feet bringing in the constant dribble of casualties from the line. In my tent there was no one very bad at the time, except a boy with his shoulder half blown off by a whiz-bang, who lay in a drugged sleep at the far end. 
The majority were influenza, bronchitis, and trench fever, waiting to be moved to the base, or convalescent and about to return to their units. A small group of us dined off tin chicken, stewed fruit, and ration cheese round the smoky stove, where two screens manufactured from packing cases gave some protection against the drafts which swept like young tornadoes down the tent. One man had been reading a book called The Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and the talk turned on the unexplainable things that happen to everybody once or twice in a lifetime. I contributed a yarn about the men who were to look for Kruger's treasure in the bushveld and got scared by a green bildebeest. It's a good yarn, and I'll write it down some day. A tall Highlander who kept his slippered feet on the top of the stove and whose costume consisted of a kilt, a British warm, a grey hospital dressing gown, and four pairs of socks, told the story of the Camerons at First Ypres, and of the Loveland subaltern who knew no Gaelic, and suddenly found himself encouraging his men with some ancient Highland rigmarole. The poor chap had a racking bronchial cough, which suggested that his country might well use him on some warmer battleground than Flanders. He seemed a bit of a scholar, and explained that Cameron business in a lot of long words. I remember how the talk meandered on as talk does when men are idle and thinking about the next day. I didn't pay much attention, for I was reflecting on a change I meant to make in one of my battalion commands, when a fresh voice broke in. It belonged to a Canadian captain from Winnipeg, a very silent fellow who smoked shag tobacco. "'There's a lot of ghosts to this damned country,' he said. Then he started to tell about what happened to him when his division was last back in rest billets. He had a staff job and put up with the divisional command at an old French chateau. They had only a little bit of the house. The rest was shut up, but the passages were so tortuous that it was difficult to keep from wandering into the unoccupied part. One night, he said, he woke with a mighty thirst, and since he wasn't going to get cholera by drinking the local water in his bedroom, he started out for the room they messed in to try to pick up a whiskey and soda. He couldn't find it, although he knew the road like his own name. He admitted he might have taken a wrong turn, but he didn't think so. Anyway, he landed in a passage which he had never seen before, and since he had no candle, he tried to retrace his steps. Again he went wrong, and groped on till he saw a faint light which he thought must be the room of the GSO. A good fellow and a friend of his. So he barged in, and found a big dim salon with two figures in it and a lamp burning between them, and a queer unpleasant smell about he took a step forward, and then he saw that the figures had no faces. That fairly loosened his joints with fear, and he gave a cry. One of the two ran towards him. The lamp went out, and the sickly scent caught suddenly in his throat. After that he knew nothing till he awoke in his own bed the next morning with a splitting headache. He said he got the general's permission and went over all the unoccupied part of the house, but he couldn't find that room. The dust lay thick on everything and there was no sign of recent human presence. I give the story as he told it in his drawling voice. I reckon that was the genuine article in Ghosts. You don't believe me and conclude I was drunk? I wasn't. There isn't any drink concocted yet that could lay me out like that. I just struck a crack in the old universe and pushed my head outside. It may happen to one of you boys any day. The Highlander began to argue with him, and I lost interest in the talk but one phrase brought me to attention. I'll give you the name of the darn place, and next time you're around you can do a bit of prospecting for yourself. It's called the Chateau of Eucourt saint anne about seven kilometers from Dovecourt. If I was purchasing real estate in this country, I guess I'd give that location a miss. After that I had a grim month, what with the finish of Third Ypres and the hustles to Cambrai. By the middle of December we had shaken down a bit, but the line my division held was not of our choosing and we had to keep a wary eye on the Bosch doings. It was a weary job, and I had no time to think of anything but the military kind of intelligence, fixing the units against us from prisoner stories, organizing small raids, and keeping the Royal Flying Corps busy. I was keen about the last, and I made several trips myself over the lines with Archie Roylance, who had got his heart's desire, and by good luck belonged to the squadron just behind me. I said as little as possible about this, for GHQ did not encourage divisional generals to practice such methods, though there was one famous army commander who made a hobby of them. It was on one of these trips that an incident occurred which brought my spell of waiting on the bigger game to an end. One dull December day, just after luncheon, Archie and I set out to reconnoiter. You know the way that fogs in Picardy seem suddenly to reek out of the ground, 
and enveloped the slopes like a shawl. That was our luck this time. We had crossed the lines, flying very high, and received the usual salute of Hun Archies. After a mile or two the ground seemed to climb up to us, though we hadn't descended, and presently we were in the heart of a cold, clinging mist. We dived for several thousand feet, but the confounded thing grew thicker, and no sort of landmark could be found anywhere. I thought if we went on at this rate we should hit a tree or a church steeple and be easy fruit for the enemy. The same thought must have been in Archie's mind, for we climbed again. We got into a mortally cold zone, but the air was no clearer. Thereupon he decided to head for home, and passed me word to work out a compass course on the map. That was easier said than done, but I had a rough notion of the rate we traveled since we'd crossed the lines, and I knew our original direction, so I did the best I could. On we went for a bit, and then I began to get doubtful. So did Archie. We dropped low down, but we could hear none of the row that's always going on for a mile on each side of the lines. The world was very eerie and deadly still, so still that Archie and I could talk through the speaking tube. "'We've mislaid this blamed battle,' he shouted. "'I think your rotten old compass has soured on us,' I replied. We decided that it wouldn't do to change direction, so we held on to the same course. I was getting as nervous as a kitten, chiefly owing to the silence. It's not what you expect in the middle of a battlefield. I looked at the compass carefully and saw that it was really crocked. Archie must have damaged it on a former flight and forgotten to have it changed. He had a very scared face when I pointed this out. Great God, he croaked, for he had a fearsome cold. We're either about Calais or near Paris, or miles the wrong side of the Bosch line. What the devil are we going to do? And then to put the lid on it, his engine went wrong. It was the same performance as on the Yorkshire Moors. It seemed to be a specialty of the Shark Gladys type. But this time the end came quick. We dived steeply, and I could see by Archie's grip on the stick that he was going to have his work cut out to save our necks. Save them he did, but not by much, for we jolted down on the edge of a plowed field with a series of bumps that shook the teeth in my head. It was the same dense, dripping fog, and we crawled out of the old plain and bolted for cover like two ferreted rabbits. Our refuge was the lee of a small copse. "'It's my opinion,' said Archie, solemnly, "'that we're somewhere about Le Cateau. "'Tim Wilbraham got left there in the retreat. "'It took him nine months to make the Dutch frontier. "'It's a giddy prospect, sir.' "'I sallied out to reconnoiter. "'At the other side of the wood was a highway, "'and the fog so blanketed sound "'that I couldn't hear a man until I saw his face. "'The first one I saw made me lie flat in the covert, "'for he was a German soldier, "'field gray, forage cap, red band and all, "'and he had a pick on his shoulder. "'A second's reflection showed me "'that this was not final proof. "'He might be one of our prisoners, "'but it was no place to take chances. "'I went back to Archie, and the pair of us crossed a plowed field and struck the road farther on. There we saw a farmer's cart with a woman and child in it. They looked French, but melancholy, just what you would expect from the inhabitants of a countryside in enemy occupation. Then we came to the park wall of a great house, and saw dimly the outlines of a cottage. Here, sooner or later, we would get proof of our whereabouts, so we lay and shivered among the poplars of the roadside. No one seemed abroad that afternoon. For a quarter of an hour it was quiet as the grave. Then came the sound of whistling and muffled steps. "'That's an Englishman,' said Archie, joyfully. "'No Bosch could make such a beastly noise.' He was right. The form of an Army Service Corps private emerged from the mist, his cap on the back of his head, his hands in his pockets, and his walk the walk of a free man. I never saw a welcomer sight than that jam merchant. We stood up and greeted him. "'What's this place?' I shouted. He raised a grubby hand to his forelock. I caught St. Annie's, sir, he said. Beg pardon, sir, but you ain't hurt, sir. Ten minutes later I was having tea in the mess of an M.T. workshop while Archie had gone to the nearest signals to telephone for a car and give instructions about his precious bus. It was almost dark, but I gulped my tea and hastened out into the thick dust, for I wanted to have a look at the chateau. I found a big entrance with high stone pillars, but the iron gates were locked, it looked as if they'd not been opened in the memory of man. Now, in the way of such places, I hunted for the side entrance and found a muddy road which led to the back of the house. The front was evidently towards a kind of park, 
At the back was a nest of outbuildings and a section of moat which looked very deep and black in the winter twilight. This was crossed by a stone bridge with a door at the end of it. Clearly the chateau was not being used for billets. There was no sign of a British soldier. There was no sign of anything human. I crept through the fog as noiselessly as if I trod on velvet, and I hadn't even the company of my own footsteps. I remembered the Canadian's ghost story and concluded that I would be imagining the same sort of thing if I lived in such a place. The door was bolted and padlocked. I turned along the side of the moat, hoping to reach the house front, which was probably modern, boasted a civilized entrance. There must be somebody in the place, for one chimney was smoking. Presently the moat petered out and gave place to a cobbled causeway, but a wall, running at right angles with the house, blocked my way. I had half a mind to go back and hammer at the door, but I reflected that major generals don't pay visits to deserted chateaus at night without reasonable errand. I should look a fool in the eyes of some old concierge. The daylight was almost gone. I didn't wish to go groping about the house with a candle, but I wanted to see what was beyond the wall. One of those whims that beset the soberest men. I rolled a dissolute water butt to the foot of it and gingerly balanced myself on its rotten staves. This gave me a grip on the flat brick top and I pulled myself up. I looked down on a little courtyard with another wall behind it, which shut off any view of the park. On the right was the chateau, on the left more outbuildings. The whole place was not more than twenty yards each way. I was just about to retire by the road I had come, for in spite of my fur coat it was uncommon chilly on that perch, when I heard a key turn in the door in the chateau wall beneath me. A lantern made a blur of light in the misty darkness. I saw that the bearer was a woman, an oldish woman, round-shouldered like most French peasants. In one hand she carried a leather bag, and she moved so silently that she must have worn rubber boots. The light was held level with her head and illumined her face. It was the evilest thing I've ever beheld, for a horrible scar had puckered the skin of the forehead and drawn up the eyebrows so that it looked like some diabolical Chinese mask. Slowly she padded across the yard, carrying the bag as gingerly as if it had been an infant. She stopped at the door of one of the outhouses and set down the lantern and her burden upon the ground. From her apron she drew something which looked like a gas mask and put it over her head. She also put on a pair of long gauntlets. Then she unlocked the door, picked up the lantern, and went in. I heard the key turn behind her. Crouching on that wall, I felt a very ugly tremor run down my spine. I had a glimpse of what the Canadian's ghost might have been. That hag, hooded like some venomous snake, was too much for my stomach. I dropped off the wall and ran. Yes, ran, till I reached the high road and saw the cheery headlights of a transport wagon and heard the honest speech of the British soldier. That restored me to my senses. It made me feel every kind of a fool. As I drove back to the line with Archie, I was black ashamed of my funk. I told myself that I'd seen only an old countrywoman going to feed her hens. I convinced my reason, but I did not convince the whole of me. An insensate dread of the place hung around me, and I could only retrieve my self-respect by resolving to return and explore every nook of it. Thanks for joining us for chapters 11 and 12 of Mr. Standfast by John Buchan. We'll return again next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>